At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Right now on Fast, threading the needle as the market's latest move higher in the stocks leading the charge. A sign investors believe the Fed has foamed the runway for the soft landing. We'll debate that. Plus, communists in the boardroom. The FBI director warning that American companies in China are now being forced to let teams of Chinese Communist Party operatives set up shop in their businesses to maintain party disciplines. How big a deal is this? Let's go live to Washington straight ahead. And later, a stock that's moving on up. Well, we will break down a left for dead company that's out of the doghouse, heading back towards the penthouse. It's up nearly 750% since the start of the year. The big reveal and the options action behind that coming up. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live from the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Karen Feinerman, Bonwin Ison, Steve Grasso, and Tim Seymour, who will join us shortly. We start off with some breaking news out of Disney. Shares right now are up by nine-tenths of a percent in the after hours. Let's get straight to David Faber in Sun Valley, Idaho, for all the details. David. Yeah, Melissa, tomorrow morning we sit down with Bob Iger, of course, the CEO of Disney. Uh, And the news right now is that he will be CEO of the company for a bit longer than had been anticipated. Of course, our viewers may recall Mr. Iger returned to Disney late last year as its CEO after a 15-year stint in that job, out about 11 months returned uh, with a end date of the end of 2024. The board of directors has requested and he has accepted an extension of his contract through the end of 2026. Perhaps a reflection of uh, the challenging times that Disney finds itself in, perhaps as well that he wants to accomplish certain things and didn't have enough time in which to do it. Also puts off, of course, uh, the search for a successor for some period of time. I'm told as well that senior management was involved in the decision uh, and also was encouraging of Mr. Iger remaining at the company. So this second stint for Bob Iger would appear to extend for what would be a total of roughly four years or right. Yeah, roughly four years instead of the two that originally had been agreed to, Melissa. That's going to be the subject, certainly, of an interview that we conduct tomorrow morning on Squawk Box. In addition to so many other issues involving the company, whether it's direct to consumer, the future of ESPN, oh, and on and on. But uh, certainly important news for the market to digest after hours. Bob Iger staying with Disney as its CEO for an additional two years beyond the expiration of his current contract, was, which was set to expire at the end of 2024. Not too much reaction in the stock after hours on this news, David. Uh, there have been re- recent reports that there was difficulty, there has been difficulty finding a successor. Uh, do you know who might have been on that short list? I'm just curious if there is, you know, any, anybody from within who might now be leaving the company because they weren't tapped on the shoulder and he's staying longer? No, I don't think that really is going to be the case here. The sense is, if you recall, he did a reorganization after soon taking over yet again uh, with certain division heads. And I think the expectation within the company is that is where the key um, race is. But I don't believe that there's any expectation that any of those people, in fact, will be leaving in any way, Melissa, or that there's anyone particularly disappointed at this point. Of course, uh, his extension does come with the recent departure of longtime CFO Christine McCarthy. Uh, But as for that search, it really 
hadn't begun in earnest, from what I understand, uh, and obviously will be conducted by the board of directors. And now it gives Iger more time to follow through on the strategic initiatives he's already put in place. Of course, we know part of them involving cutting as much as $5.5 billion worth of costs. We know there have been 7,000 job cuts along with that, but also getting the direct-to-consumer business on a path to, if not to, profitability. As they've been saying, at least so far, they expect it to be break-even by the end of 24. So that's sort of the task ahead for him. And again, tomorrow morning, we're going to have an opportunity to speak to him at length about exactly why he chose to stay, what was behind that decision, and how he's thinking strategically about the next three years. David, thank you. David Faber joining us tonight from Sun Valley, Idaho. And of course, do not miss that interview, the exclusive interview with Bob Iger tomorrow at 8 a.m. Eastern time on Squawk Box without commercial interruption. Bono, when you're an owner of Disney, not too much reaction in the stock. Does this make you feel better as a shareholder? I think in the short term, it does make me feel better. But in the long term, it's some real concern. As, you, as we mentioned, what's the succession plan here? And, and is the reason, the reason why he was brought back was to kind of right the ship. And to me, it says that the ship hasn't been righted. Now, rather than him transitioning out amidst a tumultuous situation, I'm happy to see him staying along and, and kind of stewarding this to where it needs to go. It does raise concern over the long term. Are they able to kind of put the succession plan in place necessary to continue kind of the pillars that he's setting up yeah. for? Uh, just to underscore that, I mean, when he signed the contract and was a two-year contract, was there a belief that two years would be the time frame that investors would have to wait to see the company be righted? And is now the timeline much longer? Double that, I think the timeline is longer. longer. I mean, exactly yeah. the way you said right, it. Exactly. It's nice to have him at the helm, but wow, these waters are choppier than mm-hmm. we really thought. And, you know, in the end of Iger's era, it was all about building up businesses Right. And obviously Disney Plus was everything. And now it's going to be more about the balance sheet, I think, as that becomes more of a burden. And it also your question was exactly what I was wondering. Does this mean they couldn't find anyone? Right. I wouldn't have been shocked if there had been some sort of co-president or some kind of some kind of somebody elevated to maybe a future role. Right. It may be not out to the outside world, maybe to the inside world only. I'm not sure. But it does make me think, all right, they. They're back to the drawing board on this. It seems like, did, did we chart where it was when he came back? Was it, the, the, the price is actually lower than when he came back, or in the same ballpark, right, by a couple of percent? Yeah. Is that where it was? So, so to, to both, uh, both of their point, he was seen as the knight in shining armor, including myself. I owned the stock back then. I thought it was going to rip higher. It did. And then it came right back in. If you look at the pandemic low, it was in the 80s. This is not, the, you know, pandemic low was no one was going to be going to the parks ever again. Right. And that's a huge number they do at the parks. So this has become more of a political football with the state of Florida, with Governor DeSantis. There's so much that overhangs that you can't really put a dollar amount on and a performance level on the stock. That's what we're seeing. And we don't have anyone to fill his shoes, which is very concerning for shareholders. Maybe the political issue is impacting Disney. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but what, what we do see and what was reported by the journal just this week is that it's the best time to go to Disney World because there are no lines. <laughs> and what does that tell you? Sounds like Yogi Berra. Nobody is going right now. <laughs> or there are fewer people or that people had gone right after the pandemic. They've all gone. And you're not going to go back for another year or two, um, Tim Seymour. There are problems, as Bonowin outlined, with uh, direct-to-consumer and, and the streaming side of the business. I mean, there are issues here, Tim, uh, with yeah, Disney. Yeah, but I, 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 I feel like we have priced 
a lot of that in. Again, if anything, the updates we've had recently, you guys have addressed this. Domestic and international theme park segment um, is has been very strong. Uh, and the problem has been the growth or lack in the, the DTC ecosystem and, frankly, the profitability there. It's not even that it's slowing. It, it's that it's, it's pulling, uh, you know, it's certainly pulling down net income. Um, so I, I think you take it right to evaluation. For a stock that's at a five-year low, um, you put a three or a four times revenue on the DTC business, which is half of what it was when the stock was soaring, and you put it 12 times uh, EBITDA on parks, and you still end up with $120 stock. So I, I don't like what's going on here. I don't love this news. I don't hate this news. It's not a surprise, as everyone has said. Um, there's not an easy solution here, but it gets back to a company that is priced a lot of bad news in. We know what's going on at Linear Networks. We know that the profitability on DTC is, is seemingly not even close. Um, but the rest of it more than pays for itself, and I stay here. I, I'm not selling it at these levels now. We've had a lot of conversations, Bono, about how Netflix is winning in the streaming wars because everybody else is concerned about turning a profit and getting to profitability, and that's putting additional pressure um, you know, on themselves in, in light of Netflix's ability to just be and be the king uh, in this sandbox. Um, so given that, I'm just curious, you know, is this a stock given that plus the possibility that consumers might be headed into a recession, might be, um, they may not have completely pulled back their spending yet. Maybe the worst is still to come. Have we priced that in? You know, I, I think Steve, Tim touched on it. I think Steve mentioned it as well. I mean, looking back at those pandemic lows does give you some type of rubric through which to kind of look at the stock mm-hmm. here. And being that we're within striking distance of that level does give me some comfort because that gives you an idea of what it looked like when people, maybe they had the money to spend, but literally could not go for vaccine or pandemic reasons or whatever. Essentially, the turnstiles weren't being run similarly to how, how they're not being run now. So I think that kind of gives me some pause. And I'm saying, listen, like Tim, I'm not willing to dump the, dump the stock here. As, you're, as it pertains to the question you asked me about Netflix, I do think this kind of sheds some light on the fact that maybe this thing does continue to squeeze higher because part of the attra- attractive thing about Disney is that although they have Hulu and all the other aspects, they do have the parks and DTC, which we thought were linchpins of that business and could withstand uh, you know, headwinds in other areas. So I, I just think it kind of shifts the way through which you're kind of looking at it. To, to kind of wrap this thing up, looking at Disney, where the stock price is now compared to where it was at the pandemic low, lets you know that, you know what, probably a lot of this bad news is priced in. If you were expecting the catch-up trade, and we talked about that Paris trade previously between Disney and Netflix, you're probably going to have to stay in that a little bit longer than you had expected. All right, let's get to the markets right now. And uh, the question that we asked right in the open of the show, has the Fed been able to successfully engineer a soft landing? Inflation is cooling. The S&P is at a 15-month high. And there are some surprising areas of strength in the market. Banks, big tech, even energy, we're all up today. Um, so does this market action suggest the Fed has actually threaded the needle in the slowing economy? The reaction to CPI? Was yeah. everything is up? Was, uh, yes. I mean, I, I think it's still too early for them to mm-hmm. say, you know, we did it. Because um, the one thing that I've been somewhat skeptical of, but I understand there's a lot of people who think the lag has still not been seen yet and we could still be, in, you know, awaiting a recession as some of mortgages, let's say, roll over. But, um, I mean, I think they're doing a good job. If you had looked at where, when they started this, Right. And when inflation was just we were getting those high prints, higher and higher prints that and we would have said the markets here, the economy's here where it is now. 
and, and now inflation is here, three, would you think the Fed would have been able to do that so successfully? I would have been a little bit skeptical. I, they're not done. Are. I think we're a little presumptuous. Yes, yes, agree. We're, we're not We're there. assuming that they're going to take the lead and say, hey, we're done. That's it. We're, we're going to go one more, maybe possibly two. Right. But they could overreach, which is what they typically do. So it's a little presumptuous to say that they've done the soft landing yet. The data is backing that up, but we don't know if they're done. Right. And, and all the Fed speak that we've gotten indicate that, you know, they believe that there is more work to be right. done. Roger Ferguson, the former vice chair of the Fed this morning on Squawk Box, said September is still a live meeting. I mean, nobody's really expecting nobody is pricing anything in. But he thinks it's still live because the Fed wants to make sure that inflation is dead. Bonwin. Yeah. You know what? I, I think we should need to take a, a slight step back here. Right. So I think the peak inflation story has definitely kind of fallen through. And that's just what we see. And that's kind of what's setting up the Goldilocks situation. To Karen's point earlier, if you had looked back nine or 12 months ago and said, do we think that we would end up here if this was the path to getting here? I don't think I certainly didn't. Right. So I, I do think the Fed has, has done their job. But to your last point, they are going to make sure and the, and the base effect is going to get harder and harder as inflation gets lower and lower for us to continue to have that continued slowing. So I do think the Fed will likely err on the side of hawkishness, and it's going to take some very compelling data to set up over several months for, to, to get them to kind of slow down. The last thing is, I don't necessarily think that them not continuing to raise rates is now the new story. Now it is higher for longer, higher for longer, and what effects that has on the economy. And I think that needs to be the next thing that we look at. But in this vacuum that we're in right now, until we see something, whether it be consumer credit or defaults or commercial real estate, until we or earnings, until we see something that kind of shifts this narrative away from peak inflation, people are going to continue to want to own risk assets. The real question is, what amount of money do you need to be paid over treasuries to be taking on that risk? Right. Tim? Well, I, I think we need to just not be as bold up about today's CPI number. I understand it's less than, you know, it's a third of what it was at its peak. Everyone knows that. Uh, but the, the core and was better, but still at 4.8%. Um, and, and uh, you know, although at 4.1 over the last few months and 4.6 over the last six months, Fed likely is not seeing this as underlying inflation is, is uh, uh, its friend here. And, and I guess, you know, we expected CPI inflation to come down uh, to this point, driven by lower energy prices and, and less from the easing of underlying inflation. I think some of these pressures are still there. Having said that, you know, yet another acronym for markets here, and I was tweeting this out, um, RINO, which is recession in name only, is that term you hear going around again now after the kind of growth that we've seen over the last couple of weeks, both in the labor market and, again, even if it's slowing, uh, and where the inflation is coming down and the Fed is kind of, as we know, one or two hikes away from being done. It's a question of how long they stay there. I, I just think that um, between the seasonals, between the positioning, between uh, the, the scramble and the FOMO, a lot of people that have missed this rally because people have been overly bearish. Uh, I think the market can run uh, at least until the next Fed meeting, not forever. And so this is more, uh, you know, call it a slightly a tactical view. But I, I still think that um, today's CPI number was a very good number and at least gives the market room to rally. But it's not the answer for the Fed. And it certainly gives tech room to rally. I mean, that pullback in the tenure, it wasn't that long ago that we were looking at above 4%, and here we are, Bonoin. I mean, is this sort of the, the free pass, at least for now, for tech stocks to continue higher? 
I think that's part of the equation. I think the other thing is, Tim mentioned it, a lot of people have missed the rally. I've missed a decent part of this rally. I mean, there's certain pockets of stocks that, were, that, have, that have done well. But I think there's still those handful of names, and a lot of them are in tech, that, that you buy them and you say to yourself, okay, the fundamentals behind these companies are still set up such that if I'm wrong, I feel good about being in these names. And now the narrative, whether it be AI, but let's take that example. Now there's also a growth narrative around that. So, you know, you've seen other pockets where people are kind of chasing. There's an article out about people chasing memes, meme stocks, redeploying in some of these more speculative pockets. Those five to seven names still make you feel good about owning them and being that if you own them, you are likely going to play along with the market. You don't have to worry about so much basis risk. I, I think that's, re- that's another reason why you continue to see them kind of outperform. All right. Well, one of Wells Fargo's top strategists called the CPI number good news, but slowing inflation could soon impact a popular treasury trade. Mike Schumacher is the firm's head of macro strategy. Michael, great to see you. Thanks, Melissa. Great to and, be here. And you were yourself flagging that big move that we've seen. That we were just talking about the big move, particularly in the tenure. What does this mean to you? Connect the dots for us in terms of that big Treasury trade. Yeah, it's interesting. I think people are getting on board the idea the Fed has done a bit too soon. I agree with a lot of the comments that your colleagues made. It's been a really good day for the Fed. It's only one print. If you look at core inflation, still running pretty hot, 4.1% annualized over the last quarter. So people tend to get really bold up. And it's an interesting pattern. When the Fed is done, the Fed won't announce it, obviously, but the market gets ahead of it. And you see this enormous move in treasuries. We saw a bit of that today. I think it's a, a little bit early, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I, th- I think I asked everybody this question when I get a chance to interview, you know, strategists like yourself, Michael. And that is, do you think the Fed sees this reaction in the markets and think, you know, the, this market needs a talking to? And when they have that press conference you know, in a couple of weeks, they're going to be extra hawkish to convey to the markets that every meeting is, in fact, live. And you cannot assume that the door is closed at this point because the markets are acting like the door is, is closed or done. Markets are acting like it's five o'clock somewhere for sure. They're, they're having a good old <laughs> time. And I think for the Fed, the real challenge has been the Fed can talk about a rate hike or two and people sort of get that. But where it's really failed to convince the market is, hey, we're going to be, once we get the policy rate where we want it, we'll keep it there for a long time, a year, year and a half. Powell's talked about two years. The market does not believe it. I'll give you some numbers. So if you look at the amount of rate cuts priced by the market for 2024, right now it's about 125 basis points. One week ago it was 80, 80. So the market said, oh, if the Fed's about done, that must mean a rate cut's around the corner. That's good news. We can all go out and do our thing. The Fed wants to try and walk that back. Michael, how much of this is nuance versus science? Do you think if the market gives them uh, you know, a little more room to, to raise rates a little bit further, will they take it? And it, it has nothing to do with their game plan. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I've never bought that argument entirely. But if the Fed's leaning toward a rate hike, which it seems to be doing, and the market's priced for 85 percent, something like that, let's say, on the, the morning in the meeting, yeah, it probably takes it. But does it necessarily want to push more onto the market if it's not really ready? I don't think so. So it's not so much the market giving the Fed permission, but if they both line up, it makes the Fed a little more comfortable. It's Karen. Thanks for being on. What do you think is going to happen to the shape of the yield curve? I mean, I know we have some big uh, financings coming up, but this inversion is quite pronounced and it's been that way for a long time. Yeah, it's interesting, Karen. I was in Asia a couple of weeks ago, and that was the question we got from pretty much every client. When is the curve going to steepen? It's hurting my business, et cetera, et cetera. 
And when you look at the historical data, and I think this applies to this case as well, what typically happens when the Fed is done hiking is this enormous move down in yields, but it takes a while for the curve to steepen. And I think you will not get a positively sloped curve, let's say two-year versus 10-year Treasury, until the Fed actually cuts. So it could be quite a ways off. So perhaps a little bit of steepening, less, let's say, inverted, but positive slope, we think that's quite a ways out. And you think that yields on the twos and tens are going to go lower? You're saying, you're saying to buy Treasuries at this point and that there will be more pressure on the dollars, on the dollar? Almost there, Melissa. I think for mm-hmm. us, we'll probably wait another few weeks, perhaps another month or so, but we're just about at that point. It's pretty clear the market's amped up to buy. Again, I think it's overshot in the last couple of days. But if the Fed goes once more on the 26th of July, we think it's probably a pretty good sign to hop in. So we're, we're just about at that point. Are you going to release the kind of trade that's like buy five minutes before and sell 14 <laughs> minutes after? <laughs> exactly. Right. Wait for the announcement. 27 and a half minutes later and not a second more than hop right in. That's the kind of trade we love to do. All right. I'll get the egg timer out. Michael, thank you. Good to see you, Michael Schumacher. Um, Bono, what do you think? That yields will go lower. Uh, I think it depends where in the curve. He had an interesting piece. I think that intermediate to longer term, and I want to say intermediate because long term is technically 30 years, but that five to 10 year period is probably where you want to look. I think some of the free money on the front end of the curve might be coming to an end, and hopefully investors have kind of benefited from that in the meantime. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I want to make a little more front end bets Mm -hmm. um, just um, because it's almost been a year since I started. So if those are rolling over and and I feel like your first ever treasury. Yes, my first ever treasury. And now I have a few of those. And uh, I I feel like that's still particularly as the market has had such a nice run. Now that five plus percent risk reward seems compelling. I'm going to do more of that coming up. A talk, a talk about a dual motor. One analyst getting even more bullish on GM, looking for the stock to double. The driving force behind that call next. Plus, live from Sun Valley, LinkedIn and Inflection AI seek co-founder Reed Hoffman joins us to talk investing in the AI space, what he sees next for the growing industry. Don't go anywhere. More Fast Money in two. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. Get started at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Fast Money. Ample upside ahead for GM. That's our call of the day from analysts at Citi. The firm say it says strong pricing in North America could help the company beat EPS estimates for the year and sees positive catalysts from its EV and cruise businesses. Citi raising its already bullish price target 
from $85 to $89, and that is 120% higher from today's close. Tim Seymour, <laughs> can you see that path to 89 yeah, well, I- you can't see me right now, but, but I, I'm not sure I can see the path to 89 either. Um, the path has been 30 percent up since June 1st for the stock on a, you know, a few dynamics, including just industrials. We talked about that last night, their report on the 25th. If you look across the street uh, and you look at the city outlook, they're, they're at the upper end of the range on EPS uh, on, on 2023. They're calling around 775 a share, I believe. Most of the street uh, is only, you know, five to ten percent lower between 720 and 745, and yet they're 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 somewhere around 40 to 45 dollars a share. So, um, look, I, I I believe more in Citibank's view than I do uh, a lot of the street. A lot of the street's also pretty bullish here. The valuation is compelling uh, at you know five and a half consensus PE, uh, and the fact that they continue to show that they are growing free cash flow, that they are certainly the most efficient of the big two left in Detroit. Uh, I think you stay long here. I'm not sure you're getting to 89. The excitement is not around Ford and GM. Ford and GM are, are, are value stocks, if you will. If you, The graphic that we just showed with Tesla up 120% year to date, GM has trailed even Ford. Ford's up 30%. It's been lackluster. The excitement is around EVs, whether it's Rivian or whether it's Tesla. That's where the growth seems to be coming from, not these old automakers. Yeah, Rivian is up 85% in just the past month. Um, Bonin, where would you stand here? Yeah, I mean, I think the lack of excitement is exactly why you want to be kind of buying the names. And I think Steve's point is right on. Clearly, the stock performance alone will tell you what's, what you're excited about. But by the time that wave of excitement hits the stock, it'll be too late for you to have any chance of getting that 120% kicker that they're calling for. So, you know, for me, the fact that they were still able to grow, I believe they grew auto sales about 18, 19% over Q1. And we're still talking about combustible names. I have confidence that they are still going to be able to right size any supply chain or production issues that they have and find their proper seat at the table as it pertains to uh, EV capability. So I think that if they do get that piece of the puzzle right, and it's a large piece of the puzzle, you're able to get a company at six times Ford or seven times Ford and pay and buy a value name for something that does have the upside of an EV. And that's kind of the way I like to look through it. All right, there's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. The sun never sets on Sun Valley. Top execs laying out the future for media, entertainment, and more. And the founder of LinkedIn is placing his bets on AI, where you can find opportunity in the space next. Plus, Chinese cells in the American boardroom? Why the FBI is flagging how U.S. companies do business in China and how the country could have more sway than you think. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Now is the time to embrace a new wave of workers. Every day, your team grows younger, more digital, and more drawn to entirely new ways of working, which means you need flexible solutions to connect them where business gets done. T-Mobile for Business was born digital. With America's largest 5G network, we can make it easier to work together from virtually anywhere. Your team may be changing, but with the right tech, it can be more productive than ever before. 
Get started at tmobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're headed back to Sun Valley, Idaho, where CNBC's Julia Borson is sitting down with a special guest. Julia. Thanks so much, Melissa. I'm joined now by Reid Hoffman, who has many titles, including co-founder of LinkedIn many years ago, board member at Microsoft, now a founding partner at, at Greylock, and among many other things, uh, a co-founder of Inflection.ai, which is a big uh, new startup in that space, in the AI space. I want to start off with a conversation here in Sun Valley. I've talked to so many CEOs who say AI is at the center of every single conversation about the future of their businesses. My question for you is, is there a lot of fear about AI eliminating jobs or about driving efficiency? What role do you see AIs as playing in this new economy? So the way that I frame AI is to think about it as the new industrial revolution, the cognitive industrial revolution. It's like the steam engines of the mind. And that, by the way, is both glorious and concerning. Glorious because all the productivity we have, the industrial revolution, the, the wealth, the prosperity, all the institutions, construction, transport, etc., all comes from that. Same thing we're going to see in cognitive. Now, that will lead to a lot of job changes over time. Um, almost every job will be touched because if you're processing information, doing something with it, anything from being a cashier or bank teller all the way to being a radiologist or lawyer or coder, all of those things will have an AI personal assistant for doing it, and that will change things, change industries and everything else. Um, the good news is, is that AI can be part of the solution. So you say, well, okay, so truck drivers, maybe that will eventually, that we have a shortage right now, maybe that will eventually all be autonomous vehicles brought by Aurora, other folks, as ways of doing this. And you say, okay, well, what happens to truck drivers? You say, well, we create AI assistants that help those people, like saying, hey, what else, what else is possible for you? Uh, how do you learn that job? How do you get that job? How do you do that job? And the thing that we should be wanting as a society is the AI to help everybody in whatever they're doing, not just the you know, wealthy people or anything else. To augment capabilities. So yes. tell us a little bit about Inflection AI and how it's differentiated. You, you've raised $1.3 billion. You're a co-founder of this company as well as, as your role as an investor. And its valuation is $4 billion. It has partnerships with NVIDIA as well as Microsoft. How is it differentiated and what do you see its role as being, especially when you think about your role as a Microsoft board member? So the idea behind Inflection is that every human being will eventually have an artificial intelligence personal assistant, a pie, a personal intelligence, to navigate whatever your challenge is. It could be, I've got these things in the refrigerator, what should I make for dinner, my, 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 um, my blender broke, uh, and what, how do I fix it? Or I had this challenging conversation with a coworker, and how do I help have a better conversation? Or, or I have this friend that I feel like I'm growing alienated from, how do I talk to them? It's the whole thing. And that's the idea behind inflection. And so it's trained to be good on not just IQ, but EQ, being kind, compassionate. And it isn't trying to distract you away from other people. It's trying to help you interface with people as a way of doing it. And as the Microsoft side, well, that's fairly simple. Uh, inflection is a kind of like life personal assistant. Microsoft is, hey, how do we make organizations and individuals more productive? There's a natural collaborations. I want to understand your perspective on the tech titans. Yes, you're on the board of Microsoft. Um, you're, you know, you sold LinkedIn to yeah. Microsoft and you're working on this, on this AI 
AI company that's also aligned with Microsoft. And there's this question of which of these tech titans will be the most successful in this AI race, and also a question of whether startups really have a shot at succeeding when they're competing against the Googles and Microsofts of the world. Um, who's going to win this AI race? So I think it's a huge tidal wave that's going to benefit lots and lots of players, both large players and small players. So it'll obviously be great for Microsoft, great for Google, great for other companies. Um, but that's the reason why I invested and co-founded Inflection. You know, Pi is this amazing agent. I recommend you try it, try it, right? Uh, uh, Adept, Cresta, Snorkel, all of these different things, Tome, Coda, all artificial intelligence amplified and part of the amplification of humanity. We are out of time, but I have to squeeze in a last final question on threads because you were an early investor in Facebook. What do you think of this new app? Uh, it's a great app. It's a great product launch. Amazing. I love to see where it goes. Okay, we'll be watching. Reid Hoffman, thanks so much for joining us here in Sun Valley. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borston in Sun Valley, and thanks to Reid Hoffman as well. Um, we were just talking the other day about uh, the FTC's effort to block Microsoft from buying Activision in, in the court ruled inside of micro, Microsoft and how that opens the gates. And Karen, you're saying yep. for companies like this, like Reed Hoffman Startup, right. wow. Great. Look at just his Greylock investments. And, you know, there's many others that are doing all these kinds that, that it used to be pre this FTC or in the last couple of FTCs that you could just have the path of we're going to create a great product and we're going to sell. And then that seemed to be off the table. I think it might be back on the table. Yeah. Tim? Well, I think it's an exciting day for the world of, of innovation and entrepreneurship because I, I think we, we talked at length why uh, knocking down that merger made no sense. It made no sense from a competitive landscape, and it probably, I, I think, it helps for the consumer. Um, so, uh, look, when it comes to AI and we talk about the hyperscalers, we talk about the Microsofts and uh, as Regis talked about the tidal wave um, right now, there's no question uh, they have a head start because they're uh, front line on applications where we're using AI every day. And I go to Meta, um, who, you know, I, I, I just I, I look at their core business right now and I actually think that AI has been a big part of their business and now gives them the addressable scale to get into some of the other e-commerce and threads and, and, and reels and parts of their business that right now I think it's really making a difference. And I think they get bigger. All right, coming up, Meta's mega run, the key stock level um, that was crossed today and where it could go next, plus risky business, what the FBI is saying about U.S. companies doing business in China and how the country could be steering operations from the inside. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks, rallying after this morning's cooler-than-expected CPI report. The S&P and Nasdaq both closing at the highest level since April of 2022, and the Dow jumping a quarter of a percent. NVIDIA shares rising more than 3% on reports the company is in talks to be an anchor investor in chip maker's ARM's IPO. You'll remember regulators forced NVIDIA to abandon its acquisition of ARM last year. Meta also jumping nearly 4% today. That stock closing above $300 for the first time since last February as threads continue to gain popularity. And shares of Foot Locker getting kicked after analysts at Baird lowered the price target on the name, the stock dropping 3%. You're still giving Mary Dillon the benefit of the doubt at this point. Yes, I think she needs more time. I mean, clearly that last quarter was really, really terrible. Hopefully she set the bar very, very low. But, you know, she's got a lot. I feel like, you know, you got to give her a chance to see whether this transformation, spending more to build a different kind of store base, getting rid of inventory, 
helping fix their uh, loyalty program. She's great at loyalty and DTC. So give her a chance. And it's, I mean, on metrics beside this next quarter, I think it's ridiculously cheap. Coming up, a crazy ride. This stock surging yet again as shares continue to skyrocket this year. And Karen is eyeing the company for a hint at where it could be heading next. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. FBI Director Christopher Wray condemning new stipulations on American companies operating in China, including ones requiring foreign-owned firms to establish so-called communist cells internally to enforce the country's political order. Ray's remarks before the House Judiciary Committee today described the requirements as a comprehensive threat to U.S. innovation and economic security. Eamon Javers is in Washington with the very latest. Eamon, this is really troubling. Uh, Melissa, it is. FBI Director Chris Ray said in public today something that he's also said to me in person. He's concerned about American companies in China being forced to allow Chinese Communist Party cells to operate inside their companies. Now, that's mandatory under Chinese law and has been for a long time, but it's been loosely enforced in the past. Uh, recently, though, authorities have been ramping up pressure on firms to comply. Any company of any size in China uh, is required required by Chinese law to have what they uh, quaintly call a committee, which is essentially a cell inside the company whose sole function is to ensure that company's compliance with Chinese Communist Party orthodoxy. I've been talking to experts about this over the past few weeks, and they say these cells have long been viewed by corporate executives as more or less benign. The law requires companies to allow the cells to form and to use company assets like computers, printers, conference rooms for their meetings. But I'm told there's been a shift since Xi Jinping's third term began, and some companies, not all, but some that have business licenses and joint venture agreements coming up for renegotiation are being told that the communist cells inside their company company will now have approval authority over some corporate activities, including things like hiring or investment. And that's what's raising some alarm bells among experts here in Washington who fear companies are being forced to cede some degree of control of their own activities. And Melissa, I can tell you that Wall Street is not immune to this. I spoke to a large Wall Street bank yesterday where a source familiar with the situation confirmed to me that they do allow communist cells inside their bank in China. This person said that so far, at least, the cell doesn't have any authority over the bank's business operations, uh, but the bank is in compliance with Chinese law on this, Melissa. Whether or not they have any sort of outward influence on operations, Eamon, that seems to me less troubling than the fact that they're using company equipment like computers, printers, and fax machines. It doesn't take much, as you know, to plan something so that you you know everything that is being faxed or sent from that machine and, and sure. to implant spyware into a company's system, to have it lurking around in that system for a later date. Um, that seems but, to be the most troubling thing to me. I and mean, we're talking about cybersecurity all the time. And yet here we're giving the keys to the yeah. kingdom, to these cells. Yeah, and, and to be clear, I mean, these are employees of the company in China, right? So they're Chinese nationals in China uh, who are already working for whatever the big bank is, uh, but they also are members of the Chinese Communist Party, and under the law, they're allowed to conduct their party activities inside the big bank, inside their offices, use all the facilities and things uh, to, to have meetings. And in the past, you know, they've done things like sort of book clubs where they'd read Xi Jinping speeches, and these were viewed as relatively, you know, it's sort of annoying that you have to agree to this, but it's the cost of doing business in China. It's a cultural thing. Now, though, there is this new concern that these 
Communist Party cells are asking for and demanding in contractual language some operational authority, approving hiring decisions, for example, or approving investments or where you're going to open a new plant or a new branch, that kind of thing. That's the kind of thing that uh, really scares American capitalists, right? Because they don't want the Chinese Communist Party having operational control over their capitalist operations, even in China. So, and the question is, if you can't decide fully who you're hiring and where you invest your money, do you really control your own company at some point? Where is the line? It gets very blurry in there. A lot of... uh troubling things emerging from this. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Jabbers. Um, We've talked a long time about the cost of doing business in China, you know, joint ventures with state-owned companies, Tim, but this seems to be one step beyond. How do you start thinking, if this is really going to be enforced, how do you start thinking about U.S. companies investing or with a presence in China? Well, the bright light that's on U.S.-China geopolitics and this relationship or why we're focused on this now, and I agree, it's absolutely scary. It's not new. Um, and, and this is the problem with technology. It's the great kind of leveler. Uh, it, on some level, it, it, it allows everybody to compete on a similar playing field, especially with the same technology um, or when this technology is either pirated, stolen uh, and whatnot. So um, I think we've talked about the impact of Chinese uh, pressure on American firms and those firms that won't uh, play ball. It's already been you know, front and center in the tech center. Whether we're talking about a Nike or a Starbucks uh, or an Apple is, is really where I think we have to wonder. These companies have assimilated and have done a lot to acculturate uh, within China, and that's part of why they have their success. And I think they're playing ball. Coming up, driving higher. What stock is speeding like it's on the Autobahn this year? We'll reveal the name in the trade next. Stick around. More Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for us to highlight a stock that's moving on up. Now, we wanted to play the theme song of the wildly popular show in the 70s, The Jeffersons. We're moving on up. You know how it goes, but we weren't allowed. Didn't get clearance. So here it is. Um, Anyway, Carvana is a stock that's been on a rocket ride higher, up over 700% this year. Just a few months ago, we were talking about the company being wiped out entirely. Of course, it is still 90% off its all-time high, but... um, How do you make sense of this move? I mean, it seems like based on, I don't know what. I don't know. It's another kind of magic pixie dust, I guess. I'm shocked. One thing, if anybody knows the answer to this, I would love to hear it. Do they have a registration statement that they're allowed to sell stock at the money, you know, and at the money stock sale from time to time? And we would see that next quarter if they have done that. If they're not all over this, trying to monetize this stock run, I mean, it's crazy because you have, let's take a look at their bonds, which I months ago said, this is telling you they're going bankrupt, so clearly that wasn't right. We have these bonds of 2025. I don't know if you can see the low there. There we go. And now look what's happened. They're a 13% yield, which is still, it's a big yield, but relative to a company that's about to go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. I mean, this story has changed dramatically in that maybe if they can sell enough stock, they can live to fight another day and then find another way out of it. I, I'm shocked. I, I, I mean, nothing about the metrics of the underlying business has made me optimistic. What do you show short interest on the Oh, stock? short interest. Thank you. 45%? Gigantic. 45%. And I asked, though, right. today, cost could I borrow? Cost, I say, all right, how much 25,000 shares to borrow? I thought they would say some enormous number. No, you're good to go. 2.7%. I didn't oh. do it because it's crazy because who knows where it could go. It would have lost $50,000 just waiting for them to get back to me. Uh, I mean, it's insane. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm with you. 
But the bond run to me makes more sense than the stock run does because you have this mechanic essentially called uh, cheapest to deliver. And you're going to go out and you're going to get CDS or something against you know, the bonds and you have to deliver something into that. So the technicality or the me mechanisms behind that makes sense. The short interest to me doesn't explain the run-up in the stock. I think this is meme mania at its yeah, finest. Yeah, yeah. Meme yes. mania yes. at well, its finest. What is meme mania now? It's the, you look for a high short interest. You look for something with a high short interest. Conventionally, but that's what I'm saying. He, he, no, he said it doesn't explain the edge, but it's like chicken or the egg on this thing. They look for these high short interest stocks that they can squeeze, right. and then the rest falls in line. I mean, this would Correct. be the mother of all oh, short of squeezes. Yeah. So many were waiting for. AMC. Let's get to the options activity because that was exploding too. Brian Sutton's got that, Brian. Yeah, it does feel like the short squeeze. Call volume trading two times average daily volume. So people just panicking to the upside. Then we saw a very quick reversal. But before that reversal into the close happened, we saw about roughly 3,000 calls being bought that expire in two days. The $46 strike paying about a buck 70, break even 47.70. I don't know we get through there by Thursday, but obviously massive short covering using calls to the upside. Brian, thanks. Uh, full show, Options Action, Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the final trade, Tim. Yeah, I thought our fake uh, our fake uh, Jefferson's music wasn't that good. I was going to sing it, but I won't do that. Instead, I'll sing the praises of Disney, D-I-S. I think you buy it here. Karen? Yeah, we talked about it. I feel like the risk reward in the six-month treasuries at a five-and-a-half yield is pretty good. That's my final trade. Bono in. I'm going where the excitement is not yet priced in. GM, I think they will eventually get there. Grasso? Do you think any of the viewers remember Jefferson's uh, show tunes? Yeah. I don't really? know. Really? Right. Tweet, tweet at us. <laughs> Clear, secure, ticker symbol Y-O-U. Stealthy bounce off the recent low. You do skew young. That's true. Uh, thank you for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.